peace yet again. Who is it in the press that calls on me? I hear a voice shriller than all the music. Cry Caesar. What man is that? A soothsayer bids you beware the Ides of March. Set him before me. Let me see his face. Fellow, come from the throng. Look upon Caesar. What man is that? A soothsayer. Sleep, child. Sleep, child. Feel the pain of his troubled history. Then wipe his memories, then tell him his past is a mystery. What is life without victory? Opinion, no liberty, enlighten me How to stay sane in the world, so mental world Sick enough of voodoo child playing purple haze Can't get no relief, lonely hours never temporary He knows at some point he will ascend eventually Still going to heights, coincidentally he's a mess but still Good at putting on a brave face for the camera He smiles, you can tell his fate, you can tell his fate The thief sold him a cheaper ticket to heaven's gates though no entry, 27 club says The good fly young, the good album greats Jimmy Basquiat, Robert Amy, Janice, Kurt Cobain When the stars die young Hello and welcome back to another episode of Soothsayer. Today is Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. And uh, taking a break from improvised speaking, I... Uh, decided it would be interesting to share some of my, uh, some excerpts from my morning pages that I've done over the past week. Um, so yeah, here you go. Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, Portland, Oregon, United States of America. The pilgrim sits at his desk, chocked full of paper slips, with rough drawings and reminders of his various happenings. His coffee cup pushed to the side, its contents steaming with the scent of warm earth and caramel. Books are stacked and pressed together on shelves, creating a literary cityscape skyline of mismatched buildings. Pens and pencils scattered about like driftwood logs that have rolled onto the sandy beach with the early morning tides. Snapshots of people that he loves the most are fastened to metal frames with little magnetic ball bearings, their faces smiling out at him, reminding the pilgrim of the ones for whom he works so tirelessly and for whom he owes infinite gratitude and appreciation. Graphite-smeared sketches of skeletons, flowers, and junk-drawered symbolic motifs litter the walls next to post-it notes reminding him of his appointments past and future, creating a bizarre collage display, his own personal art gallery of designed discordance and curated chaos. He's flighty and forgetful, and if something isn't in front of him in some form, it is likely to be overlooked and forgotten. The pilgrim's world continues to change every moment, and he currently finds himself in a strange form of purgatory that he hasn't quite experienced before. It's as if he is sitting in the middle of a small sailboat that has drifted into still waters. And a question arises. Do you wait for the next gust of wind to fill your sails and take you somewhere new? Or do you take matters into your own hands, break out the oar, and start paddling, and if so, in which direction do you set your sights? 
we often think about the predicament of being stuck as a form of physical immobility, being locked in place and unable to move freely. There are, however, many different forms of being stuck, and sometimes that immobility does not come from bindings or barriers or locks and chains, but rather from the uncertainty of what one should do, if anything, and in which direction one should travel. There's a type of stuck where you have full range of motion and nothing holding you down, yet you are unable to move because you simply just don't know where to go or what to do. If the pilgrim, in his little sailboat in the middle of the ocean, decides to wait it out, sure, a gust of wind might come through and fill his sails, pushing him along to new territory. Yet, there's a risk that a gust of wind will never come along and he'll forever drift idly in place until he dies of dehydration and his eyes get plucked from his head by hungry seabirds, or his boat becomes overrun with bloodthirsty sharks, or perhaps a tidal wave crashes down and pulls the pilgrim in his little sailboat to the depths of the ocean floor, where his bones turn to coral and hidden treasures belonging to Davy Jones. On the other hand, if the pilgrim decides to pick up the oar and paddle, he could very well end up going in the wrong direction, away from any possible gust of wind, passing ship, or tropical island lush with abundance. He could be paddling forever to no end, which in essence is no different than if he had stayed in place. Or he could by chance stumble upon an island only for it to be filled with native inhabitants that are hostile and hungry to turn his body into ceremonial soup. Or possibly even worse, the island is deserted with nothing and no one, and the pilgrim meets the same gruesome end as before, only this time on dry land instead of in the middle of an endless sea. It seems that, in all possibilities, the pilgrim could very well end up in the same predicament his own strange version of waiting for Godot, paddling or sitting idly, waiting for someone or something to come and deliver salvation. So, how do we know when it's best to stay put? And if we choose not to stay, how do we know which way to go? Which direction do we point our sails? How fast should we travel? What are we looking for that will affirm that we've made the correct decision and opted for the right course of action. The pilgrim is aware that the only way to know something is to find out by doing. He's lived his whole life on the move, so is continuing to scratch the itch of wanderlust the right choice for him? Or is this another instance of falling into a detractive habit and slipping away into another form of escapism? Should he continue to sail? Or should he drop anchor and lean into the possibility of building a harbor around him and creating his own island and his own ground? There's the fear of change, of venturing into the unknown and the uncertainty of what lies beyond the horizon. However, the pilgrim seems to fear something even more. A life unmoved, rooted in one place, unable to freely float and drift where the celestial winds take us. Fear of a life of missed opportunities and chances to set his eyes on sights unseen and set foot onto lands unwalked by anyone before him. 
Does the urge to keep moving come from wanting to seek and discover what's beyond the veil? Or does it come from the desire to escape? Does it come from not wanting to miss out on the world? But what if salvation isn't out there, but rather it is uncovered from staying put and allowing it to find you in your current surroundings? Is salvation discovered or is it delivered? What a peculiar thing to find oneself stuck without restraints. For some of us, building a home doesn't require solid ground or laying a foundation, and a home can be whatever is carried on your back and in your own heart and mind. For some of us, building a home requires us to venture out and make the world our living room where, no matter the location, we feel the comfort and familiarity of a home without walls or a roof. Yet, a home built in one place can stand the test of time and become a castle, a temple, a sanctuary that will endure. Perhaps, in the end, it doesn't matter which one you choose, for whether it's adrift at sea, on an island, or in a home you've spent your whole life constructing, at some point we face that same moment of feeling stuck without restraint, and we must make a choice as to where we go next. For nothing lasts forever, regardless of its stable foundation or its durable mobility. At some point, your life crosses the threshold, from searching for where you want to live, to searching for where it is you want to take your final breath and allow nature to reclaim the vessel that you've borrowed since birth. Monday, April 27th, 2020, Portland, Oregon, United States of America. To worry is to suffer twice, and I'm the master of making myself suffer. Worry is the fear of the unknown, and we fear the unknown because we don't want to end up in a situation in which we are hurt, taken advantage of, or lose something or someone of importance to us. This is why in Buddhism, and many other spiritual practices, one must practice the art of letting go of attachments, letting go of expectations, and letting go of the idea that you are right and that you know what you're doing. This is hard for most people, myself included, and it's never something obtained, but simply uncovered more and more as time passes. There's a beautiful magic that occurs when one practices letting go. You begin to see that a vast majority of the things that we as a society hold in high regard are not as vital or important to our existence as we once believed. And we see how we've dedicated a massive amount of time, energy, and efforts into things that frankly just don't matter one bit in the grand perspective of the universe. It's abrasive. It's brash, it's uncomfortable, it's a jagged little pill that is tough to swallow. Yet, it's one of the universal truths. We are simply microscopic little blips that pop into and out of existence within a single breath of the cosmos. At least that's one part of it. See, the part where we talk about how unimportant we are, that's only a small fraction of the truth. 
This is the entry point into which you must make your leap of faith, for this is how one humbles themselves in front of divinity. There's a lot more to all of this that is arguably more difficult to understand and accept than the first part. This is where it gets paradoxical, you see, because while it is true that we are simply one small speck of dust caught in a single ray of sunlight in one particular moment in one particular universe, it is of this same universe from which we are created, and therefore we are the universe, from its microscopic plank to the macroscopic vortex, galaxies swirling into a cosmic cappuccino. We are the universe experiencing itself, exploring itself. We are the thing before which we kneel down and humble ourselves. Congratulations, this is what godhood looks like. It's funny, I never thought that it would look like sweatpants and outturned pockets, or like bookshelves with no obvious form of organizational system, Dewey Decimal be damned. Who knew that Godhood was doing the dishes and watering the succulents you bought last summer from a vendor at the farmer's market? Who knew that Godhood was found in the late night drives along dark coasts singing full volume out the car window? Who knew that Godhood was the grandmother driving to the post office to send off a bill payment or a child grappling the concept of imaginary numbers in the mind's eye? Godhood is all around us, in us, of us, through us, above and below, everywhere you look, there's the oh-so-holy essence of the universe and, by default, of our own selves. It is difficult to let go of our attachments and make peace with our universe because to do so requires us to let go of and make peace with our own selves and to be what we truly are, all things. We are capable of all things because we are all things. The gentle spring breeze is the cool exhalation of our own lungs being filled with that same spring breeze. We create the world in which we move. Tuesday, April 28th, 2020, Portland, Oregon, United States of America. Ever since I was a little kid, as opposed to now, being an older, bigger kid, I've struggled with falling asleep. I remember laying in bed, staring up into the ceiling with my mind aflutter, imagining what it would be like to go to outer space. To help me fall asleep, I would close my eyes and, if I were quiet and patient enough, I would start to hear my own pulse beating softly and muffled through my pillow. In hearing this, I would imagine myself walking up a hill, dragging my feet through dried leaves, each footfall crunching and rustling, never stopping and always keeping in time with my circadian rhythm. For some odd reason, I feel like I would imagine myself not as a child, but as an adult, possibly an old man, strolling in the late evening with his hands casually holding each other behind his back, eyes glancing down towards my shoes as they continued to trudge through dried foliage on the cold earth. A meditative stroll uphill towards who knows what, because in these images and thoughts I wouldn't ever arrive to anything or anywhere in particular. Rather, I would simply continue to ascend up the hill until, eventually, I would fall asleep and wake up to an entirely new dreamscape. 
This memory of walking uphill through leaves was constant as a child and is still to this day a strong image that is conjured up in my mind. The ascent, the journey, the ease with which I would take my time, not to rush, but simply make my way up the hill one crunchy leaf at a time. This was my first form of meditation. Was this some form of subconscious understanding depicting the journey of life? In our culture, we often reference the idea of being over the hill and things going downhill from here, as if our lives are a bell curve, rising to a point of existence, and then, for whatever reason, we start to decline downwards, downhill towards death, ending six feet lower than where we originally started our journey. Why does life have to go downhill? Is this some sort of limitation that we've constructed for ourselves? Why isn't life viewed with the opposite perspective? Where instead of climbing the hill, we descend into the valley, starting up high and lowering ourselves to the point where we can go no further, crossing the gully and once again returning to a higher state. Why is it a hill? Don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily against the hill image as a symbol for our life journey. It can draw up some rather important information with its imagery. With a hill, like in life, you can't see what's on the other side. And when you are young and anxious, you charge up this hill with gusto and determination to reach a height within our sights, and once it's been reached, we make our way down again. The hill imagery isn't bad by any means, yet it does give me pause to consider even greater thresholds and possibilities. See. The thing about hills is that they aren't the highest peak that one can reach. And most hills come in herds of varying sizes. And if we're going to make the climb, then why stop at the hills when there are mountains and cliff sides, planets above and stars beyond? I don't mind the constant, unending journey towards ascension. I just prefer that it is always a few more steps beyond where I'm at, so that there is always somewhere a bit beyond for me to continue forward, leaves crunching underfoot hands rested behind my back as I casually and consistently journey onward. Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. We often talk about wanting to gain a new perspective and wanting to see things from a different angle, yet we often fail to take the needed actions to do so. There's this old folktale. I've heard many interpretations of this story, yet, for the most part, the premise and message behind the tale is very similar, if not the same. The story usually goes something like this. Once upon a time, in a small town in the middle of nowhere, there was a group of blind men who unknowingly, gathered around an elephant. Unable to see, but curious of the object in front of them, they decide to investigate. Wanting to know more, but not wanting to move from where they stood, they decided to reach out to feel the creature with their hands. The first blind man planted his feet firmly in the ground and reached out to the elephant, and in feeling his trunk, says, I think this is an anaconda with a long, slithering body. A second blind man firmly plants his feet into the ground, reaches out, and upon touching the elephant's side, says, No, you're wrong. This is clearly a cow, as its side is strong and muscular. 
A third blind man firmly plants his feet into the ground and, upon reaching out and touching the elephant's tail, says, no, you're wrong. This is clearly a horse, for it has a soft, malleable tail. The fourth blind man firmly plants his feet into the ground and, upon reaching out and touching the elephant's tusk, says, no, you're wrong. This is clearly a rhinoceros, for its horn is sharp and hard as stone. Unable to find common ground, the four blind men begin to argue about the creature in their midst, their voices getting louder and more passionate to defend their stance. Hearing the shouts of the men, the elephant became upset and, in an attempt to escape, began to swing its body about wildly, knocking the men over with its trunk, hind legs, tail, and tusk. With the men on their backs in the dirt, the elephant stamped away, leaving behind a cloud of dust and the groans of the unsettled men making their way back to their feet. As they brushed the dust and dirt off of their clothes, the first blind man called out to the group, saying, I was wrong and you were right. It was a cow. I was knocked to the ground from its strong hind legs. The second blind man called out to the group, No, I was wrong and you were right. It was a horse. I was whipped to the ground from its soft tail. The third blind man called out and said, No, I was wrong and you were right. It was a rhinoceros, for I could feel its sharp horn as it ripped my robes and sent me to the ground. The fourth blind man called out to the group, No, I was wrong and you were right. It was an anaconda, and its long, slithering body tripped my feet and knocked me into the dirt. Finding themselves once again in disagreement, the blind man began to argue about who was wrong, who was right, and what kind of creature had bested them all and caused them to fall. Little did they know that this whole time there had been a fifth blind man amongst them. Instead of staying put, he decided to wander around the creature, being sure to reach out and touch it from all angles. By doing so, He had figured out that the creature before them was indeed an elephant, but before he had been able to say anything, the men began to argue, resulting with the elephant becoming agitated and knocking all of the men, the fifth one included, to the dusty earth. As the men continued to argue, the fifth blind man stood up, dusted off his clothes, and as he began to walk away, he called out, My friends, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on here. The men ceased arguing, and one called out, Yeah? What's that? The fifth blind man continues to walk away, calling out behind him. Bad things happen when blind, stubborn men argue with each other. So, I definitely did not retell the story the same way that I've heard it. And I've added a few details, and yeah, the plotline doesn't fully make sense. But that's beside the point. In this version of the story, we can glean the following. First, Reaching out your hands for more information does bring some enlightenment, but only partially and only equal to the extent and efforts with which we are willing to give. Second, it benefits us not to just obtain information from where our feet are firmly planted, but to walk around and uncover what else can be revealed, better informing us of our current situation. Third, it is possible to be both correct and incorrect at the same time. Each of the blind men were correct in describing what they were experiencing, but because each of their perspectives was only contained to partial truths, each one had an incorrect assessment of the creature before them. Because of this, it is crucial that we remember that just because we are right, it doesn't mean that anyone else who says otherwise is wrong. 
This also works in the other direction. Just because you've found yourself to be wrong, that doesn't mean that everyone else around you is right, and that you should abandon what you've discovered and blindly accept someone else's truth as your own. Fourth, arguing about things when you have a limited perspective with limited information doesn't answer any questions or enable progress, but rather it causes our environment to be chaotic, harmful, and dangerous. Fifth, if you have the awareness to explore and gain more information through other perspectives, don't keep quiet about it or wait for the right time to share it. Hoarding valuable information doesn't make us more enlightened. If you recall, the fifth blind man who walked around the elephant was still knocked to the ground, along with the other men, even though he had the fullest assessment of the situation before them. While it is not for us to teach anyone or change anyone's mind, it is important that we share the information and resources that we have with each other, so that we can all become more enlightened together. And finally, the sixth thing that we can pull from this story, and in my opinion, is likely to be reflected in our current world, and serves as an important reminder of our dire need to change the way we exist together, and that is this. Stubborn blindness and the unwillingness to listen leads to pain and suffering. And if you ever see a group of stubborn men blindly arguing about things of which they don't know, you should run for cover lest you want to be knocked to the ground. It is best to be willing to move from our own footing from time to time, and to listen, share, and open ourselves to the truths of others. These are all just words. And in my short experience in this life, the most important words that could ever be said out loud to anyone are the words thank you and I love you. So, to everyone listening and to everyone that isn't listening, I just want to say thank you and I love you.